Welcome to the Mental Health Boot Camp Podcast. Wow. Yeah, it, it got That's in a after a yeah. little moment. <laughs> yeah, we all paused, waiting for it. Wow, that's festive. That was good. This is the podcast where four psychotherapists, three of us Canadian, one of us American, serve you cutting-edge mental health knowledge. I am Dr. Ryan Howes, a clinical psychologist from Pasadena, California. And I am Brooke Lewis, a registered clinical counselor from the Vancouver, Canada area. And I'm Joanna Boyd, also a clinical counselor from the greater Vancouver area. And I'm Chris Boyd, psychotherapist from the greater Vancouver area. Welcome back, you guys. We missed you last week. Yeah. So how did it go? How did it go? It was perfection. Beautifully or perfectly imperfect. Does that work? It was the perfectly imperfect podcast. Uh, Joanna came up with a great topic, and we we borrowed your dad for a while. He was great, and uh, I think we 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 bust we we burst through and busted some perfectionism myths. So pretty good. That's good. I did have a listen, and it was uh, it was fantastic. Well done. Well, especially appreciated, uh, you know, the old man getting on there, mm-hmm. sharing his wisdom. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's great. He had a lot. Of, yeah, he jumped right in. Yeah, he had a lot of great things to say. He's just he's so good at just off the cuff. He's like the the original ambushy, you know? Yeah, he is, actually. So yeah. working in his office, you never know, like during a case consult or something, he'll just call you out with a question or get you to expand on something or mm. he ambushes people all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. Keeps you on your toes, you know? Yeah. He also voluntolds people. <laughs> Voluntels? Like, like Volunt- a voluntel, I guess? A told. <laughs> okay. You get voluntold a lot. Yeah. So if you're not there and something needs to be done, he will volunteer you in your absence to I do see. the task. Well... So yeah. Well, good yeah. encouragement to show up. I see. That's true. So, Ryan, how's the uh, Psychotherapy Networker Symposium going? Oh, yes. The conference. Today was day one of the Psychotherapy Networker Symposium, all virtual. And uh, so I was doing it from <laughs> so funny, like the way these things work. So here I was I was a, an MC. I was like a host for uh, for one of the talks today. Deb Dana talked about polyvagal theory. And here I am on Pacific time and she's on central time. And uh, the engineer who was doing the recording, I believe was on Eastern time, right? But we're all doing this workshop to 600 people around the world uh, on this massive kind of Zoom call thing. And uh, it worked, believe wow. it or not, it worked. It's crazy. That's good. So this is of course, um... Sadly, the first symposium without uh, Rich Simon. Yes, true. One major highlight of attending this conference is Rich's addresses. So did they do something this morning or is that more for tomorrow that uh, the big address will happen? Uh, There was was a a little memoriam at the very beginning uh, this morning. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. that was, uh, I was kind of busy preparing for the, uh, for my, 
my talk. Um, so I didn't get it, but I will watch it. It's been recorded. So I'm going to take a look. I hear it was very touching. And there are going to be more, more memories and more stories, I think, on Saturday. People talking about Rich and uh, just the impact he made on the field. So, Aww. yeah, yeah. Very different in many ways. I mean, gosh, to have this whole thing online when we're used to having 4,000 people crammed into a hotel <laughs> and all those auditoriums and huge mm -hmm. bathroom lines and all wow. that stuff. I was just about to say that the bathroom lines. The bathroom lines were pretty insane. And uh, yes, for it to all be online and then also for the, the founder and really the yeah. spokesperson for the whole event to not be here with us is really, really a change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, hey, with any luck, maybe the four of us will be there together next year, huh? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots Hope of fun so. memories. I think we've what gone seven or eight times. Well, uh, uh, yes, I think you guys missed a couple. I, I think it was my tenth the last time. Last wow. time I was there. This year. Last time I was there, which was ninety two thousand nineteen. Was that my tenth? Yeah, no, it was. My it must ninth. be our yeah. eighth. Wow. Yeah. So we met you twelve years ago. Yep. What do you know? Oh, it's wow. our anniversary. Nice. Yeah, friend anniversary. Friend anniversary. There you go. Also, when we met uh, Thomas from Sweden, <laughs> was twelve years ago. So, Thomas, if you're listening, hello. <laughs> um, tell them who Thomas from Sweden is. Thomas from Sweden. Um, we. Uh, I don't know who met him first, but it actually could have been me. So, uh, the first year I was there with a colleague and a friend, and they have something called a newbie breakfast. And the newbie breakfast, you wear this, this ribbon that identifies you as a new person to the conference and you get to go and uh, the breakfast is just for new people with some volunteers. And I sat at a table with Thomas um, and his friend and, um, and my friend. And we met him there and then we saw him throughout the conference and we've seen him every year since, I think. So we always mention, like, make sure to go and say hi and connect and have conversation a little bit here and there. Does Thomas have a connection with the speakers at all? Because he's usually at the speaker meeting too. Yes. So he some, uh, somehow is connected to Rich Simon's oh, wife. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's also... I believe she's Swedish. Yes, that's right. Right. Yeah. So I think somehow in there. Yes. So we yeah. enjoy them and uh, we enjoy Thomas and, and there's, the, the ritual about candy on Saturday. Yeah, Lourdes Gudis. What's it Lourdes called? Lourdes Gudis. And okay. so Lourdes Gudis, uh, I'm sorry if I'm butchering that to all those Swedish listeners out there, Thomas and my friend Alex. So, uh, but what, this, I looked it up, there's a story behind it. And um, so way back, I don't remember what year it was, but it was a long time ago. Uh, they wanted to do a study on tooth decay. And so they actually took people that were, they were in asylums, an interesting psychological link, and they made them only eat candy Oh man! and measured their tooth decay. And from that study forever ago, again, I don't remember how long ago, it was a long time ago from that study, they decided that people should only eat candy one day a week because of tooth decay. And so they picked Saturday. So Lourdes Gudis, means candy Saturday, goodies is goodies. Um, yeah, so Swedish people, as far as I know, according to 
my Canadian friend who now lives there and tries to explain it to me, uh, will only have sweets on Saturdays. And so when she orders groceries, part of that is like a candy bag, that the candy bag would be the equivalent of like a medium-sized popcorn bag in Canada. Mm -hmm. So maybe a small-sized popcorn bag in the States is my guess, Mm -hmm. probably. (laughs) And it's like halfway full of like random little different candies. And then that sits on your counter. And on Saturday, you eat candies. And they, they stick with it. They don't eat on the other days of the week? For the most part. So Joel, my friend's husband, and they have two kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if Alex tries to give the girls candy a different day, or if Alex is having a sweet craving and has some chocolate or something, and Joel sees, he's like, it's not Saturday. He'll mention it. Wow. You're not supposed to eat. And, and, but pastries is a totally different thing because they have something, fika, Again, sorry if I'm butchering that one, but that it's a uh, coffee and a pastry in the afternoon. Okay. And so like cinnamon buns, cannabule is they have a cannabule and a coffee or a pastry and a coffee at wow. like two or three in the afternoon, but not candy. That's only for Saturday. Oh, all right. Or that's what I've picked up thus far. So sweet sticky buns are okay, but uh, not the hard candy, huh? Well, the kinda... buns don't have the uh, the icing like we would have, mm. so they don't really have like a like a honey or a sugary glaze on top, and they don't have uh, like a cream cheese frosting. They don't really have that. Is it just a bun? So it's with a, sprinkled a in cinnamon with cinnamon, and then um, they kind of have like I guess it's powdered sugar, but in these like almost like little balls of them. Mm. And so that there might be a few of those on top. Interesting. Well, okay. Well, we're gonna have Beautiful to research country. this. Yeah, I was just contemplating. Yeah, I was just contemplating how beneficial that would be to only have sugar one day a week. At the same time, though, if you're eating like uh, th- three pounds of uh, sugar on that one day, it may nullify all the benefits. Yeah. Well, they're just looking at tooth decay, though, right? So, if your teeth are okay those other days, maybe that's that's the only thing they're thinking about that time. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. It is. It is. Well, thank you for the cultural lesson there, Brooke. That was helpful. And for Thomas for inspiring that, I suppose. Yeah. And if any Swedish listeners are listening, please correct us. Please correct us. us. Info. Info at mentalhealthbootcamp.com. Let us know what we screwed up and how Brooke mispronounced those words. Oh, I definitely did. Yes. Well, look, uh, I think it's time for our ambush. Ambush right? time. Oh, it should have a little theme song, a little jingle for that, huh? <laughs> oh, did it. We're good. <laughs> ambush time. That's it. Ambush time. Oh, that's great. Uh, ambush. One of us knows what the topic is. The other three do not. And is it Brooke? Are you up for tonight? Huh. No. Nope. No, just kidding. It's me. I forgot last time. Right. I've been beating myself up all week for that, even though I just talked about perfectionism, but I still can't believe I forgot last time. All right. I am going to send myself the magic text message with today's topic on it. Let's see what it will be. Send and received. Ready? Ready. Ready? Here we go. Oh, sorry, my Wi Fi is cutting out. 
Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> You're fine. All right, you ready? Here it is. Anxiety. Why do we have it? Oh, what can we do about it? Should we avoid, soothe, or face anxiety? And when do we know it's time to seek help? I'll repeat. Anxiety. Why do we have it? And what can we do about it? Should we avoid, soothe, or face anxiety? And when do we know it's time to seek help? I mentioned that middle piece because avoid, soothe, or face anxiety are all advice that I've heard given regarding anxiety at various times from various people. Avoiding it, distract yourself. You know, if you're feeling anxious, just, you know, read a book, play a video game, take your mind off it, uh, soothe it. You know, do we do deep breathing, meditate, whatever that might be to try to calm your nerves or face it. A lot of people are saying these days, you really need to, the only way through it is to face it and go, go right through that anxiety. So these are questions we need to answer everybody. It's up to this crack team of psychotherapists, international team of psychotherapists to face these questions. That is a really good topic and such a relevant topic. Yeah. I think a lot of people struggle with anxiety, anxiety. Uh, I like to ask clients if anxiety is a normal thing that everyone feels, you know, does everyone experience anxiety? And you get a, a bit of a mix. It's about half and half. There's people who will be like, no. And then there'll be some who are like, well, yeah. And we usually go through, okay, why is it normal that we all experience anxiety at some point and kind of jump into there about how it was necessary at some point for us to survive. And I think Chris, you have a little spiel. Don't you go through like the frolicking in a field, little saber tooth tiger thing, or is that just me? Oh, I do that too. Yeah. yeah. If you're a caveman yeah. and cave women in a, and a saber-toothed tiger came around, we would have to survive that. So what would we do? Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually kind of think that anxiety is a bit of our superpower as human beings. I don't think we'd be here today if we didn't have anxiety. Um, if you look at anatomically similar homo sapiens who've been evolving for the last 200,000 years or so. Well, I do that um, comparison all the time. Sometimes I can't sleep at night because I'm thinking about that. Yeah. I'm joking. I don't. Um, uh, if you look at the evolutionary context of it, we weren't, uh, I, I kind of think that fight or flight wasn't quite enough for us. We needed to, because we weren't strong enough to fight off predators. We weren't quick enough to evade them. We couldn't climb trees quick enough. So I think we had to develop a mind that can help us anticipate things that, that may happen in the future and reflect on close encounters with you know, dangerous situations in the past and help us collaborate in sophisticated ways. So I think the, uh, might be a bit of a stretch, but I think the origin of the mind has a lot to do with anxiety. And that's one of the big reasons why we're here today. That's an interesting spin on it, Chris. I like that. That the ability to anticipate things that aren't there is actually one of the things that saved us as a species. Yeah, because apparently we're like the only ones that can do that. I'm not sure how you can test that, but most other species are they're in the moment so they can sense things in the moment and then they get into that fight or flight reaction whereas apparently we're the only ones that can anticipate things that may happen in that moment and uh i think that kind of made the difference right so neanderthals apparently homo sapiens were better at that than neanderthals because they kind of plateaued they weren't in such a dangerous area they didn't have to deal with the same predators we did so um 
yeah, interesting stuff. But I think it's important to see it within that context and normalize it. Mm-hmm. But I guess the big question is, you know, it's, it's very healthy and um, to experience it at times, but it can also be very dominating as well. So some situations it would be normal would be like, you know, you hear a lot like before, you know, trying something new or it might be before a presentation. It might be before a job interview. It could be um, meeting someone new. It could be trying an activity for the first time. It could be jumping skydiving, out, jumping out of an airplane. Um, these are understandable situations in which anxiety will come up. Right. Um, but there's a certain. Uh, po- oh, hold on. We have to distinguish between fear and anxiety. Ooh. And right? stress. Oh, man. Oh, okay. man. So I would say fear is more within the moment. Anxiety is the anticipation of harm and danger. And stress is the physiological aspect of it within the body. Hmm, very Whoa. Nice. What do you guys think? <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say I'm very, very much, very similar to that. I would say, though, that. Uh, that I would characterize fear as about a, a real stress. Like I, I would think that jumping out of, like going skydiving is gonna create fear. Um, mm-hmm. uh, whereas anxiety is about imagined stress. Like what if, you know, there's a dark alley, what could happen, what could happen to me down there, right? Yeah, but would, uh, if you're on the plane about to jump out of that door, that would be fear. But if you're a couple of days before getting on that plane, wouldn't that be anxiety? Okay. Yeah. Yes. Would that be exactly. Fair? Yeah. Cause it's not, yes. It's not actually happening in that moment. Yes. If you're on the plane, I think you're feeling fear. No, I agree. Oh. And same with like a, a release. If you watch a really scary movie, you genuinely mm-hmm. are probably feeling like fear or feeling scared or like in that moment more immediately. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. Would, could you be afraid of public speaking and also like, I don't know, there's phobias about public speaking. So would that be, you're fearing it? Or where would you, can you is, also be anxiety? Well, is well, phobia, could phobia be a fear then? That's what I would think. Yeah, sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But I also, then there's such thing as anxiety around it or, you know, public speaking and things like yeah. that. So. Performance anxiety, right? Someone's yeah. afraid of what could happen. What if I put mm-hmm. my foot in my mouth? What if people laugh at me? What if no one cares? What are all those things, right? Yeah. What if I get so nervous I can't talk? Um, and that's, yeah, the what ifs. I think what ifs are always, I think, the anxiety question. Um, what, what the hell am I going to do now is the sphere question, right? Mm-hmm. Someone's coming at you with a knife. You're not anxious. You're afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're walking down a dark alley and you're not sure what's behind the next corner, I think you're anxious. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Yeah, for sure. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I just throwing it out there is it's kind of the, the way that I thought about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then, then you, Chris, you said stress then is the, the, the physical response to all of these things. Yeah. Like there's, you know, often the distress and you stress, right. But it's more of the, the physiological reaction happening within our bodies, right. No mobilization of energy. Yeah, I think it is mobilization of energy, but I would say that stress is also just kind of lower on the continuum or spectrum of anxiety. Like, I think that you can be stressed or feel stressed, and then it can turn into anxiety, right? 
I think I would picture stress as being like an accumulation of fear and anxiety, like the, the, the physical response to an accumulation of <laughs> fear and anxiety. <laughs> like I've got so much going on and it just, you know, it builds up over time. Right. Yeah. But, um, sorry, my dog is trying to decide where she wants to lie down. Um, yeah, like if you have a lot going on, if you're really overwhelmed or whatnot, you can you can be stressed. You can feel stressed mm -hmm. without it being anxious, right? So it, so it doesn't necessarily mean stress. If you're extra stressed, you're all of a sudden going to be anxious. It's not a you know, it's not like you turn up the volume on stress and anxiety is a guarantee. Though when I think of a continuum, yeah. I think if you're putting stress down here and anxiety up here, I don't know if that necessarily would be the worst end of stress. Yeah, but you think they're different continuums? I think so. I don't know. That's how I see it. But I think it's it's good to chat about this and see how everyone would kind of conceptualize it. Yeah, I, I think you can be stressed and not anxious, but you can't be anxious without being stressed. Hmm. Okay. So well, necessary and sufficient. <laughs> what's necessary and what's sufficient? So what I think of is like I heard it from Mel Robbins. Um, she has like an audible. Um, talk that she does and she said that when you feel triggered by something uh, cortisol like stress hormones flood the body and she said uh, the stress hormone should only last for about 90 seconds and that should dissipate but what keeps it there is actually the rumination that kicks in like the anxiety mm -hmm. side of so the thoughts start to ramp up and then your body stays escalating and that's where it can go on and on and on where the stress hormones are flooding your body for longer than the 90 seconds Interesting. Okay. So I think we've done a, we've unpacked stress, anxiety, and fear a little bit. Um, Chris, when you were talking about the evolutionary piece, it reminded me of a book I read a long time ago, which was Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert. Yes. Which he talks about, about the fact that he, he actually goes as far as to say that uh, human beings are the only species that can plan for the future. And, and people often think about squirrels and that sort of thing, but those, that's just from instinct. They're not actually thinking about, hmm, I think, well, I believe winter is coming. I must save some nuts. <laughs> but human beings can plan and, and envision things that aren't there, like an architect imagining what a building might look like or someone imagining what uh, 2025 might look like, right? Yeah. Um, and since we can do that, we can imagine all these wonderful things but as part of the, the survival mechanism, we also use that skill to imagine the horrible things that could happen. Yeah, sure. You know, what are the negatives that could happen? So that, and the idea is we're imagining those things so that we can prepare and ultimately protect ourselves. Yeah. But for some folks that kind of takes over and, uh, and we get into this parade of horribles that, uh, that could happen to us in the future. All right. For sure. <clears throat> yeah, I think, uh, yeah, again, I think the survival piece is so pivotal to that. So it's like the, we adapted the way we did for survival. And then one of the nice outcomes of that is we can plan for other things happening too. But sure. Yeah. So, and another piece since we're talking about why we have it, we're talking about this kind of evolutionary piece to it. Um, I believe there's also an environmental piece to it maybe someone who knows something about trauma could speak to how the trauma might influence someone's uh, anxiety response as an adult. When you said an environmental piece to it, I was like, 
like sustainability how does this like climate change like, <laughs> no, I, I guess it motivates us to work on climate change like is that where he's going i meant like nature nurture environment that sort of thing like the early environment of of our lives how does how do things other than evolution impact um our anxiety for sure. Anna, do you want to take that one or do you want me to do to, we, we both work with developmental trauma, I think. You mm -hmm. can start us off and I'll join in. Okay. Um, yeah, and I, I think we've talked about this prior to in other podcasts, but um, like in an evolutionary perspective, we're hardwired or we have wiring for the development of this system. But then your, which is going to be like the nature piece and then nurture piece is going to be the environment that you're in. So if you're in a healthy, secure, consistent, predictable, stable, um, attuned, present environment, then your nervous system is going to develop to be able to um, like assess danger differently or uh, be sensitive to the cues of danger differently than somebody who is going to grow up in an environment that's inconsistent, unpredictable, potentially unsafe, whether there's um, a verbal, emotional, physical, sexual abuse that happens to the person or is witnessed by the person. And then that nervous system then becomes better or quicker attuned to your machine to pick up this, the, the signs of danger, that evolutionary piece, because you've lived in the danger so you are going to be faster to acknowledge uh, or to pick up on it when it happens. So, mm -hmm. and then as well, like if somebody goes through a different type of trauma, maybe it's not even at home, right? Like maybe it's not continual developmental, but perhaps you're in elementary school and you have something happen that's really embarrassing and people laugh at you. Then we want to take a look at that because that, while not a big T trauma of like a, major earthquake, natural disaster, car accident, um, serious physical or sexual assault. But in that, that's an emotional trauma that happens in that moment. And then your nervous system sees that as a threat, picks up on those cues, it imprints it onto your brain, all of these things. And so in the future, any situations that are familiar to that become triggering and anxiety provoking. So trauma is going to imprint and it's going to imprint all those cues because they're threat cues. So then Can that... You, mm -hmm that nature piece then kicks in to say, all of these things are signals of danger. So I'm gonna look out for those in the future and it becomes quick to do so. And it might feel like you're back reliving those situations, right? Whether if you think about being bullied or if you think about, you know, you got in a car accident and now you're thinking about driving, you might have that same um, physical somatic response and it could feel a lot like anxiety. Is yeah. anxiety, or whatnot, the stress in the body. That sounds like a great explanation of that. So yes, you say someone that was maybe traumatized in a certain way, you know, maybe there's a sexual abuse or there was physical abuse, something like that early on. And the things or that- continual. Or like continual, yeah. Neglect um, or inconsistent parenting. By inconsistent, I don't mean like, I don't know nap times were different or something like that but more like whether or not there was emotional nurturing towards the child throughout their life in a consistent and predictable manner fair enough and the idea there is that things that are 
reminders of that, things that are, I guess to use the word triggers, you know, things that are, are that send a signal to the person that, uh oh, this could happen again, can set someone off and bring them back into that anxious place, right? Yeah. It's like the saying, the neurons that fired together wire together. Yeah. Right? Anything associated with that previous experience is going to sound off the alarm bells within the body. Yeah. I see. And it's going to respond as if it's life threatening. I think this is another piece to it. Sometimes there is. We don't want to turn that system off um, because if you are, you know, confronted by someone with a knife, you want that system to turn on. You want it to work. We, we don't want to turn it off. Um, but if you, um, one of my peers is had a negative experiment, experience, I won't go into the experience, but it was, I consider it traumatic, involving a watermelon. And so now she won't eat watermelon. Mm. The watermelon is not life-threatening. Mm -hmm. No. Right? Yeah. So that's, um, that would be an example of something you would, if that's, interrupting your life, if you live in a world where you can only eat watermelon, you would want to do some work to correct that, right? Yeah. To challenge that, to reprogram, to desensitize that fear response or the anxiety response. Yeah. I think there's, you know, I just want to highlight the, there's a huge cognitive piece to anxiety though, right? Is those automatic what if thoughts that Ryan was talking about earlier. Like you're, you know, the, um, Sometimes you can't control those first thoughts, but often it tries to convince you not to engage in whatever activity it is. So don't do it, avoid, we develop these ways of coping with it, right? Mm hmm Right. So and in order to, oops, right. No, go ahead, go ahead, Joe. Before we tackle the thought, so we usually need to get into a place where we are be, like calming ourselves, right? Because if we're not able to really tackle our thoughts or think properly when we're in a heightened state of arousal or feeling very anxious. So we usually need to, that's where the um, distraction piece comes in or the soothing or um, to get into a place where we can almost be able to take a step back and identify these thoughts a little bit. Right. That's yes. That's kind of at the heart of, of my questions here. Cause I, again, I see and read and, and take workshops sometimes with people who, it can seem like there are conflicting messages here, you know? Oh, you're mm -hmm. feeling anxious? Well, divert, go somewhere, you know, distract, divert, avoid basically, right? Maybe until your system calms down or something like that. Other people, oh, you're feeling anxious? Well, then actively do something to calm down your body. Deep breaths, uh, meditation, lay down, cold water on your neck, whatever it might be, cold, cold, like, uh, Compress? Washcloth. Yeah, washcloth. Hot compress. A loofah? Okay. Cold loofah on your neck. <laughs> Gentle kisses? <laughs> All of those things. Yes. <laughs> to soothe. Whatever that might be. And then others still who say, nope, if you're going to go, if you're going to lick this anxiety, you need to face it and like just experience it and realize that it not, doesn't last forever and it, and it, uh, its power will eventually die off. So I'm just curious, since I'm working with the brain trust here of international therapists, what, what say ye about this? Uh, I think it's client dependent a little bit. Step one, like meet the client where they're at. Um, 
and I agree there's conflicting advice on this. Uh, I think distraction is good when you're in a place that you cannot process what's going on. Okay. When, when there's not time or place to process it. If you're at work, if you're in the middle of lecture, if you're like in school, um, you're in the middle of a, a crowded place with friends, crowded mm -hmm. place, mm -hmm. and you're noticing you're anxious, distraction might be a really good thing for you in that moment. Because you're not going to be able to go and do a 20 minute mindfulness activity and then journal and go for a run. That's just not going to work. So you're going to maybe in those moments, distraction is actually a really good thing to do. Right. But I also like when dealing with anxiety, like just general anxiety or phobias or whatnot, I, I actually um, view it almost more like our OCD talk, the like systematic desensitization piece of we want you I think the goal is to confront the fear or whatever the anxiety stimulus is and reprogram that to be a safe place especially if it is like a legitimate safe thing such as a watermelon or you know like mm -hmm. you need to drive again like let's get you to do those things um, but if you flood someone if you do it too quickly then I don't think they're going to continue on that process because they're not ready it's a genuine fear or anxiety response, right? And we don't want to flood the system. So yeah. I think you have to, it has to be a balance of exposure and to calm down, exposure, calm down, exposure, calm down, unless you're doing something like EMDR. So mm -hmm. eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is for trauma and anxiety and different things. What happens there is like you're uh, calling up a memory and feeling the sensations and then you're processing through, but they, the term that they use is an ab reaction. So if you're having an ab reaction, if you're getting very emotional, if the practitioner is noticing there's like tears happening, you actually don't stop processing. So processing is where you're doing eye movements or tapping or buzzing bilateral stimulation, and you don't stop while that's happening. So in some ways you're like, well, they're having a flooding experience. So CPT methods would say, let's acknowledge that, calm down, and then push a little further, push a little further, you know, pizza dough, if you push too far, is going to rip. Yeah. So you want to stretch it slowly. You don't want to go too far too soon. You're going to rip the pizza dough. But EMDR says, no, if there's an ab reaction, keep going. Yeah. I, when it comes to that question, um, I would say the ultimate goal is to step into that discomfort. Yeah. So to calm the body, shift the mind and step into that discomfort. Um, so you could notice you're feeling anxious. You can try to do something to calm the body down. It could be the deep breathing. You can ask yourself, I forget who coined this. I can't think of the fellow's name, but is this a signal or is it just noise? Is it a signal of actual danger or is it just noise? And then the idea is like, I want this. I want to face this and then stick with it. And, you know, as you're calming yourself down, stick with it and step into that discomfort anxiety is such a tricky thing the more we allow it to control our lives the, the actually it actually gets worse so yep. it gives you temporary it gets relief. bigger mm -hmm. yeah it gets temporary relief and then actually gets worse the frequency yeah. and the intensity of it gets worse and then it starts to generalize other parts of your life right so we don't want anxiety to call the shots we want to make sure it's that oh we can't oh, hear you we can't hear you your voice went out chris yeah, you're still, we can't. You're hear. still muted. Now you're frozen. 
Anyways. Oh, that's too bad. We don't want anxiety to call the shots, right, Chris? Can you hear me okay? Yeah, no. Yes. Yeah. It's, that's right. Uh, yeah, you liken it to it's like a fire alarm going off, but there's only, you know, there's no fire, right? Or a smoke alarm. It's just, yeah, there's no actual danger. It's just going off hypersensitive. So you got to be able to differentiate when the actual danger, right? So. Yeah. It's a, a really good classic book. I'm sure we've all read it, but I don't think that it's outdated, even though it's a little old, but feel the fear and do it anyways. Mm. Yeah. But um, I agree. If it's a phobia, then you got to be a little more careful with that. But, yeah. but anxiety, like, and this is a huge issue for like students, for instance, right? I feel anxious. I can't do this test or, or I want to go home. And uh, that's going to make the situation worse. So really trying to educate teachers and caregivers to, to, to help their, their kids. Yes. Yeah, Self-soothe, calm themselves down, but ultimately you gotta, gotta stick it out. Right. Yeah. Learn how eventually, to discomfort. Yeah. Eventually the anxiety will subside. Right. So two years ago, the last time we were at the, the symposium together, I was slated to give a talk and the, the symposium, we usually show up on Wednesday and, uh, and it was Saturday night, like the last night that uh, they do this, storytelling event and I was supposed to give a talk there um and man I was so anxious so so much fear about what was going to happen on that stage it's a big I mean it's a big room there's hundreds of people there and it's just me there's no notes it's got to be a memorized talk and you got 10 minutes to tell your story it's got to be it was actually closer to a thousand people in that room that night there were a lot of people in that room and, and probably the biggest names in our field. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There were, <laughs> yeah. there were a lot of big names there, like, you know, Dan, Dan, the man and Bessel and rich and yeah. You know, um, the Gottmans are there. All these people. Oh, man. Sue Johnson. Yeah. Sue Johnson. Thomas, right. Yes. Yeah, so big names in the field. And then, and then like a couple of days before that, as I'm talking to the person running the show, she says, Oh yeah, you're on first. So I was kicking off the storytelling event and I was a mess. And I was, I remember talking to each one of you about my anxiety that, that week, you know? Yep. And you're all very helpful and, and, and all of that, you know, trying to help me through that, you know, what, what's, what's going on? What's this about? What are you really, what are you scared of? You know, and what, uh, what's your body trying to tell you right now? And it was all, it was very, very helpful stuff. Um, and yet I knew I just, still had to go through it there was still this thing kind of looming ahead of me and i was i was scared and, and i i take it to a, a a second dynamic place for myself like what is it about this that is why this for me you know why is this scaring me you know i've been a i've been a, a teacher on and off for 20 years i've spoken to large groups of people before I, I actually created the storytelling event in another context that the symposium took and and ran with it so why was I so nervous? And that was a big part for me that I was trying to figure out what, what's about this that was so scary to me. And I, I took it back to some, some childhood stuff, some things from my own, uh, like being made fun of, things like that on, in school and you know picked on by older kids, that kind of stuff. And I think there was some of that that was definitely echoing through, like I'm gonna be, these are old signals that I'm still, feeling. And by the way, I totally recognize that this is 
this anxiety I was feeling was it's it's a very privileged anxiety to have, right? I'm I'm at a conference speaking to a thousand people about a topic that I I wrote and I find interesting. Um, you know, this isn't like waiting for the what what horrific test results I'm going to get back from the doctor, you know, or what uh, you know what does this what does this this lump mean, you know, or what else what you know what horrible things might happen. Yeah, will my family member make it after this big accident that they've had? No? Exactly. Totally. You know, those things are... How are, am I going to pay my rent next month? How am I going to pay my rent? Right. Yes. That's a very realistic one over the past year and prior to that too, but even more prevalent, right? Absolutely. Right. Or can I can I drive my car without being harassed or, you know, I mean, I think of, of all of the racial violence that's gone along recently. I mean, my goodness, you know, so again, I acknowledge that this, this anxiety I'm talking about for me is small potatoes compared to what a lot of people face on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and I guess I just want to, to be able to, to help people recognize what they can do on their own. And then to the, to the last part of our question, when do we know that it's time to seek help? You know, um, you know, is there anything else we can tell people to help them deal with their own anxiety? Uh, and also when do we, when is there a tipping point where we know, you know what, we need psychological intervention or medical intervention, something to help out here. I was just going to say quickly, Ryan, I know you, you said it's small potatoes compared to what some people are anxious about, but I think, you know, I encourage people to do their best, not, well, if it can help you maybe ground yourself in some way, sure, but we just got to be careful. I think there's a fine line when people are struggling with anxiety or um, other mental health things, or it's easy to compare yourself and be like, well, why am I even feeling this way? It seems so silly or compared to what other people, and that can make them, you know, feel like, there's something wrong with them. I don't know. I just think it's easy to shame yourself or feel like oh. I have no excuse. Other people are going through worse. And I think it's, you're having anxiety. It's how you're doing. It's where you're at. So let's work with it. Even if it's about a test, if it's about a watermelon, if it's about a presentation or, you know, something uh, bigger than that, I think it's a moth. a moth, an accident, any like big things. I think just, we got to be careful. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely yeah. right, Joe. I, I should practice what I preach. I say the same thing to my clients. And yes, there I just minimize my own side. It's all relative, right? It's I mean, it's it's a fear. It feels in the moment like an existential crisis, whether it is or not. I mean, it, it's just my body's activating as if the saber tooth tiger's in front of me. And, uh, you know, regardless of what the stimuli is. Yeah. And you're right. It's problems are not in a hierarchy like that necessarily, right? I think people feel like they're alone. I think there's a lot of teens and they feel like they're the only ones who are worrying about if everyone's judging them or they're the only ones who are anxious about going to school or presenting in front of their class. And you know, um, they're not alone or they compare themselves or et cetera. But anyways, yeah, I think it's very sub relative and subjective for sure. That's a great point. I think um, if it starts to impact your ability to, ability to engage in life or it might be um, kind of telling whether to reach out for help or not. So is it impacting my ability to do well in school uh, or to work or in, within your relationships? Um, I think that might be a, 
a, a decent sign that you may want to reach out and get some support. Mm -hmm. Okay. Impacting. I, it's, um, hmm? I was just going just to summarize that impacting your ability to to work, to like function in relationships, to socialize, these sorts of things. Yeah, to, to engage in life, to, okay. to, you know, to do what you feel you should be doing, I guess. Mm -hmm. okay. I was um, going to say, I, I agree. That seems to be one of my go-to markers if it's impairing your functioning. But I also want to put it out there that like uh, counseling is there, help is there. Like if you feel that it would be helpful for you for whatever reason, maybe you are high functioning and going to work and being social, but you're plagued by it, then like help's out there. So mm -hmm. come on in, give us a call wherever you are. We'll figure this out, right? There's also um, just on the note of when to reach out for help. I just want to mention types of help because um, sometimes with clients, I mentioned, I feel that they're really lucky that they're coming in with anxiety. Anxiety is so well-researched and there's so many tools and that in itself can be a little overwhelming, but there are many websites and books and programs. Um, so in, in BC where we are, there's uh, Anxiety BC, which is a website and there's like for adults and teens, there's like kind of separate content there. Um, I, think it, but, I think it's anxiety Canada now dot, or .com. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's anxiety Canada now. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have some um, like free programs put on by the government that are CBT based for mild anxiety or mood disorders. So you can access that um, and it could be self-referred. There's support groups, there's uh, tons of books and workbooks, therapists, uh, all kinds of things, right? Youth workers, school counselors, and everyone's so well-versed in this because it's so common. Um, so there's a lot of help out there that you can access depending where you're at. Great. Yeah. Well said. Well said, very well said. I'm sure there are, yes. I don't think the United States is, is as well-equipped as you guys are, but... Uh, there's certainly resources you can look for them. Um, and also there's this other thing called the mental health boot camp, which yeah. has all of these different exercises and things that will help you work on uh, calming yourself, getting control of your emotions, including anxiety. There's even a whole module there on anxiety itself. Yeah. And mindfulness, right? And mindfulness. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So there's this idea of if, if it's difficult to function, maybe that's a time to reach out. Brooke's saying, hey, look, even if it's not hard to function and you have some anxiety and you want to learn how to manage it better, there are a lot of resources out there, um, a lot of things we can do to help with, with yeah. anxiety. So go ahead and reach out. Um, what do you guys think about medication and anxiety? Oh, back to the medication. Just to toss it out there. Yeah, I think it's tough. I think it's always a tough question, this one. I wish I knew more about the ins and outs of all the research or all the medication, right? Because we're taught one thing and maybe some recent books have taught us some other things. And yeah, I think it's difficult. I do honestly, uh, and I'm, I think Chris has witnessed this with some other clients as well. There's a bit of a placebo effect of knowing you have the medication. So Ativan is a really common prescription medication that you can get for anxiety it's not to be taken daily it's to be taken very sparsely when you feel like a panic attack approaching um and my clients once they fulfill that prescription tend to have fewer panic attacks just knowing they have it mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I've noticed that as well. Yeah. Just kind of knowing sure. it's it's on hand if I need it and kind of is enough to, uh, to, to make you feel a little safer, huh? Yeah, just having that safety net. Um, yep. Yeah, I, you know, of course our disclaimer is we don't, we're not medical doctors. A lot of the anti-anxiety medications are benzodiazepine, so they're more PRN medications. So if you really, really need it uh, in the moment, um, it can it can help you out. So some people who have a, a huge fear of flying, for instance, may have an Ativan before they fly, um, versus having it every single day, because that's where it could be um, could create some, um, some side effects. Some people are actually microdosing mushrooms to help deal with. Uh, anxiety it's also folks out there yeah folks out there uh um using marijuana as well so yeah lots of research out there but it's uh, still um being still a lot of unknown um factors sure yes a lot of unknown there and i've certainly seen many people who are who have panic attacks uh, or some pretty severe anxiety who greatly benefited from having some relief from that through medication and like ah okay i can finally you know go to work knowing i'll, I'll be okay or i can you know make it through the night or something like that with, uh, with having the comfort whether they take it or maybe they don't they just know that they have it as Brooke was saying um in the long run ideally we would like to have help our clients be able to manage anxiety and, and um, manage all emotions in a way that it doesn't require um, medication because there are side effects, as you said, and some um, medications can even be addictive. But I would say that, you know, certainly when needed, it can, they can be quite helpful and kind of be a kind of a bridge to help someone uh, crossover, you know, if they need to just have some stabiliz stabilization so that they can work on some of the underlying issues, it can be very helpful. Yeah. So yes, we're not MDs, we can't prescribe. So take all that with a grain of salt. Have you guys ever known someone to who's dealt with anxiety and has really kind of licked it? They felt like they've really conquered it or managed it in a way that's been pretty meaningful? Yes. We're going to get more crickets? Going to get the cricket sound effect again? No. I think we work, <clears throat> work with lots of clients who we, we see some, some progress there. As Brooke mentioned, um, you know, some great techniques and strategies to, to help out with that. Ryan, you brought up an interesting point too, and like doing the, some of the deeper therapeutic work and maybe seeing why that anxiety is so intensive. Um, so when you help do that, sometimes you see a release and you see clients come in like, oh, wow, like I, you know, I drove today or I crossed that street or mm -hmm. I, did, I did that talk in front of my team. And so it's kind of neat. Uh, you, you can, using CBT, for instance, cognitive behavioral therapy, you can have these, you can measure it out, right? So can help develop these great game plans for people. And uh, they have a great sense of satisfaction when they start to reach those milestones. Mm -hmm. Or no longer having panic attacks. That's uh, for people who have anxiety with panic attacks, that's a, a good marker. And it's so great when, if a client's coming in and they're having three a week, 
sometimes, you know, or even more. Um, and then you get to a point where they come in and they're like, oh, no, I haven't had any since our last session. And that might be a week or two or three, um, you know, and it just progressively keeps getting better. I think that's amazing. We're getting the random emails. Sometimes, sometimes my clients like ghost me a little bit, not like in the sense where they no show, but like, like, okay, well, you're doing pretty good. So just give, give me a call when you feel you need to come in again. Or if they're like, oh, I don't have my schedule, I'll just give you a call, you know? And then you don't hear from them. <laughs> it's like you're ghosted by your client. But uh, then you get the random email from them. This happened to me a few times this year with COVID of like, hey, sorry, I never rebooked or whatever, but here's my update. And it's like a year or two later. And they're like, this is where I'm at and I'm doing really well. And I'm not struggling with those things anymore. And Mm-hmm. That's nice. Place. They emailed you. Yeah. Yeah. That is nice. That Very is nice. thankful. I think I've had two clients as well in all the years that we've been doing this. So I started in 2008. I think I've had two where they came in and booked a session just to tell me they were doing well. Because we're oh, like, you nice. know what? I felt like people probably didn't do that and you might not know. So I thought I'd just come in and let you know. I was like, that was great. Aww. That's really sweet. There was definitely no charge for that session. That's very nice. I will say that I've, I've been fortunate enough in my, in my advanced years that I've been able to see a lot of people uh, really conquer anxiety in a significant way. Now that's not to say, by the way, when we talk about overcoming anxiety, you're going to have some anxiety always for the rest of your life. Let's get, let's make peace with that idea. We're talking about the kind of anxiety that's really, debilitating in some ways type type that uh, holds you back it's so uncomfortable it, it makes you lose sleep or lose weight or gain weight or lose relationships whatever it might be um but i've seen folks who've been able to overcome that and it's usually through one of a few different means one is maybe they they realize and work through some sort of underlying trauma or painful experience from their past you know uh, let's say, let's, for example, say there's a, a young woman who uh, really wants to date, but gets horribly anxious every time she goes on a date with some some guy and uh, they start to get close. Then she totally brings up a fear reaction. And then we talk for a while and realize, oh, you had, oh, maybe you didn't realize that you had an abusive relationship when you were growing up and being close with somebody meant pain. So as Chris said, things that what, fire together, wire together, like, oh, you're associating closeness with being hurt. So now that we kind of understand that and realize that not all relationships are going to hurt you, maybe that kind of frees you up. And even just that insight can sometimes free, free up a person from anxiety. Another could be, um, you know, some irrational beliefs that, uh, that go around that as well. Some, some kind of negative thoughts or some distorted thoughts that go along with um, uh, where their where their anxiety is coming from, things like, uh, you know, people try to go with like the flying a plane. People fear fear flying. Some people can actually attack that with the the statistics and say, oh, well, it's actually safer than driving a car. For some people, that works. Not everybody, but for some people, that works. Um, or realizing that okay, I've just been I've been seeing things the wrong way. There's usually some sort of an underlying meaning between the behind these anxieties. And another is oftentimes the connection that I have with my client. And sometimes a client being able to come in and discuss these things 
and divulge them and let out all their, what they might call crazy thoughts and have another person who's there and is compassionate and can hear them. It's not judging them and lets them speak freely about it. Sometimes even that is enough to relieve a lot of the anxiety. Like, oh, wow. So that doesn't mean I'm, you know, I'm, I'm unlovable or I'm, you know, like you're going to run away screaming when I talk about these things, you know, you can still accept me, even though I have these thoughts sometimes. And I believe that relational component is really an important part of this, because honestly, if you think about times when you've been anxious in your own life, a lot of times just talking it over with someone who was caring and understanding was enough to, to help, you know? Um, and and I think that anxiety, along with depression, we'll talk about depression another time, but anxiety is, is tells you this lie that you need to hide it and keep it to yourself and isolate from other people. And you need to just, you know, bury it and try not to, you know, if you said it, it would be, that would make it even worse. But off, oftentimes talking about it with somebody makes it so much better because you realize, oh, okay. Oh, you felt this way some way be sometimes before and you're still okay. And I think you're okay. You think I'm okay. You know, it's, all of that reassurance is so helpful for people. Anyway, I've been, been lecturing for a while here, I guess. It's good. Yeah. So recognizing underlying trauma, recognizing some irrational beliefs about things and having a point of connection, I find have been very helpful for people. Well said. Dealing with anxiety. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's a big topic. It is. It is. And I think we could talk about other things like phobias, like panic attacks, mm -hmm. like other kind of offshoots of anxiety that, uh, you know, and other, other distinctions, social anxiety. Agoraphobia. Agoraphobia. That would go under phobias, maybe. Yeah. You know. A lot of other things we could talk about, but we'll, we'll be back. Anxiety, we're not done with you yet. Our old nemesis. We're nope. not done with you yet. Nope. Well, okay. If that's all we have, then we will say farewell for the evening. Toodles. Bye, everybody. See Please you later. Like and subscribe on Apple, Google, Podbean, Audible, Spotify, or YouTube. Send your questions to info at mentalhealthbootcamp.com. Visit us on Facebook or Instagram. Tell a friend or two or play your horn for us. Go, Chris. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. If anyone can aid me, it's my brother in the army. I don't know where his station is in Cork or in Killarney. If he'll come and join me, we'll go roaming through Kilkenny. I swear you treat me better than the old Miss Fortune.